Do you invest in ETFs? Whether you're thinking, what in the world is an ETF? Or you're looking for the next opportunity to add to your portfolio. GlobalX has you covered. From big tech to bonds and bars of gold, GlobalX offers a wide range of exchange-traded funds. Go beyond ordinary with GlobalX ETFs. Visit globalxetfs.com.au. That's globalxetfs.com.au. Are you thinking about starting your wealth-creating journey but not sure where to put your hard-earned dollars? InvestSmart can help. InvestSmart offers a free quiz that makes it easy to find the right InvestSmart ETF portfolio to help you reach your goals. Just visit investsmart.com.au and hit get started. Answer a few simple questions about your goals and how much you want to invest and you'll get a tailored statement of advice with a portfolio recommendation. You can visit investsmart.com.au for a no obligations free statement of advice. This ad is brought to you by InvestSmart Advice, AFSL 334107. This Australian Investors Podcast episode is brought to you by The Intelligent Investor, Australia's premier investment research membership service. You can get a free trial for 15 days, no credit card details required. To access the insights of some of Australia's best analysts, use the coupon code RASK and secure your Intelligent Investor membership today. We're proud to have The Intelligent Investor as an ongoing supporter of the Australian Investors Podcast. As a result, RASK does not earn a volume-based fee. Simply head to intelligentinvestor.com.au or use the link in your podcast player to access your free trial. This episode of the Australian Investors Podcast is also proudly supported by SelfWealth, Australia's leading independent broker. Over 120,000 investors trust SelfWealth with over $9 billion in equities. With SelfWealth, you can trade ASX, US and Hong Kong listed shares for a flat fee. On a $10,000 investment with Comsec, you'd pay $29.95 in fees. Yet with SelfWealth, it's just $9.50. The thing I like about SelfWealth is the full access to fundamental company data and how easy it is to trade US, Hong Kong, and Aussie shares in one place. You can see your Apple shares and ACDC ETF right beside each other. To join SelfWealth now, use the link in your podcast player or head to selfwealth.com.au and use the coupon code RASK during sign-up. Hey there, here's a quick note. This podcast contains general financial advice only. That means it's not specific to you, your needs, goals, or objectives, so don't act on the information until you've spoken with your financial advisor. You'll find our full disclosure, disclaimer, and link to our financial services guide in the show notes. Luke, welcome back to the podcast, mate. Thanks, Alan. Thanks for having me on, mate. Hoping today we can talk about two things, one being small cap investing and the other one being, um, I guess, management or just people in general and the role that people play in investing. Because we're doing this Investor Bootcamp series, a 10-part series about research and an investment process, if you like. Um, I'm hoping you can dive into two of those things because the the first time we spoke on the podcast, which I'll put a link in the show notes to, Twitterati went a bit crazy over some of the scuttlebutts and some of the ideas you brought to the table in terms of how to find insights on small and micro cap companies. And then the second the the second part of this is like, well, how do we deal with management? So how do we um, how do you talk to management? I think there was one question. I won't take it away from you just in case it's on your list, but there was one question that you had 
that you seem to ask for all management teams, which I'm hoping you bring up today. And if you don't, I'll, I'll remind you of it. But um, I know I've sent some just some loose talking points in advance. Uh, five reasons why small cap investing or micro cap investing, basically just small company investing is interesting and a, a really good stopping ground for people to kind of learn how to understand businesses, learn how to you know, comprehend balance sheets and all that sort of stuff. So maybe I'll just hand them over to you. And as we go through, I'll just I'll just chime in and hopefully add some value too. Yeah. Well, I think the beauty of it is, is you know, you've selected two, I guess, at face value separate topics about mm. um, researching and investing in small companies, but then also how do you approach management. But I actually think that when it comes to small companies in particular, management, how you approach them and the, and the information and value you can get from them um, is so important. So I think that they're two topics I think really relate well together and, and, and certainly very important to how I invest as a as a, as a small caps investor. Um, but yeah, no, look, I, I like I said, you sent me the you know maybe a, a rough structure with maybe five ideas of investing in small companies, um, and so I've gone away and done that. Um, I'll start with my first one. It's a, it's a really basic one but but small companies just have less eyeballs on them um mm. less um you know formal sell-side institutional research less commentary on um you know share market media websites stock forums twitter as you mentioned before and so you naturally have inefficiencies in that market which leads to opportunities but um, what that also creates is if you're someone who is looking to widen your experience base of researching, investing, and valuing businesses, it's an interesting place to, to um, have a go at developing those skills because you don't have the ability to rely on other people's work. Um, mm. Why it may be a good entry point, you know, if, you, if you're starting off in, in investing, um, you know, looking at some large cap companies that are well-researched and well-covered, you can sort of, you know, um, use them to, to, to get some building blocks. I think coming back into small companies and starting fresh, standing on your own two feet, it's it's incredibly important. Um, and mm. it's something that I, I can speak to personally. That's that's sort of the journey that I took in my investing. You know, you, you find yourself um, wanting to test yourself and push yourself and naturally come into those pockets of the market where there aren't other people to supplement your work um, uh, it means coming down into the small caps. So mm. I, I think it's it's such an um, important reason. And then it, it feeds into a, I guess, a, a second order effect of that is, is, like I said, there's also fantastic opportunities in small caps because of those inefficiencies. I mean, um, by its, its very nature of, of the market, if you have large liquid stocks with, um, you know, um, think about the US where you might have 20 to 30 sell-side research notes covering a stock and, and you know, a lot of large funds owning a stock with publishing their own research and, and spoken about on media channels and, and stock forums. Um, the, the chances that that stock is priced quite efficiently is very high. Um, mm. And usually your only edge as an investor is maybe something like taking a longer time horizon or, or something like that. But it's very difficult to add an analytical edge to, to your research because it's just so well covered by everyone else. Um, but you come back into the small caps where you don't have that. Um, all of a sudden, you can add genuine analytical edges. You, your, your research can uncover um, you know, investment thesis and, and potential opportunities that simply other people aren't finding and looking at. So um, it's it's probably the biggest reason about why I think people would would have a look at small caps if you're looking to build that knowledge base of, of investing and valuation. Um, but also probably the most important because it's also what creates those those opportunities for people. 
So did you, so just to recap there on your experience, so did you start with small caps or did you go to blue chips and come back to small caps? So right at the very start, I started in blue chips. I think um, I think when we did our first podcast together, I said my first two stocks were a couple of mining stocks. I, I got yeah. tips from mates. Um, after that, um, you know, I was buying stocks like NAB, uh, Telstra, very much dividend focused, to, to be honest. And I think a, a bit of that was, you know, when you look at most of um, what financial media coverage and, and even, I guess, financial advice in, in the mm. public sphere is very much geared towards dividends and blue chips and and things like that. So um, that's where I sort of found myself early on in, in, my, in my journey. Um, but like I said, you naturally become attracted to the fact of, okay, these blue chips, I guess for certain people, that's what you know that that's all they need and they can generate a nice safe steady and, and defensive return i think for some people but if you're looking to really test and push yourself as someone i was looking to get into the industry obviously but even someone who wants to just um you know uh, research stocks a bit deeper as a side hobby i think coming down into the into the smaller mid caps is, is a great way to do it because you'll naturally find yourself having to push your own skills beyond just relying on the the, the vast wealth of information that large caps have out there already mm. so number one is kind of like this analytical edge that you can get um and it's, you know, that can be overwhelming for some people because they're new to investing. They're thinking it would be good to have a broker report so I can at least understand this business. But I find there are also sometimes at least simpler business models as well, like the kind of true to form, more pure business models, whereas a blue chip can be kind of unwieldy. What's your number two? Well, you've led me right into it. So oh, my right, number okay. two was, was we didn't literally, <laughs> no, sim- simpler business models. And I think um, a few things to, to talk about here. So first of all, um, Small micro cap, small cap, and even up into mid caps, um, you generally have much cleaner business structures. So um, investors don't have to worry about um, debt, um, minority interests in other businesses. You see a lot of that when you get up into the large caps. And, and to be honest, um, you know, even even well seasoned um, investors can can struggle to pull apart some 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 large cap businesses. Um, but even from an operational point of view, you generally only have one product or service, and it's usually only in one geography or regions. So it becomes relatively more simple to analyze um, from a industry perspective, a a competition perspective, um, even growth and and maybe addressable market um, analysis becomes a lot easier. Um, As you you, you move up into large businesses, you often find um, you know, a handful of product and services. They've got operations all over the world, and, and you see that if you if you you know look at trading updates from large businesses, um, you'll often see one segment doing well while one's doing poorly. One geography is doing well while one's while one's doing poorly, and so there's a lot of complexity to to pull apart there. Um, mm. If you if you really wanted to go deep into the analysis of that business, whereas if you come back to some of these smaller businesses, they're they're usually much more hyper focused. And while it can be daunting if there isn't um, other research or or um, information out there to, to to build your knowledge base on, the fact it's a simpler business makes that that task a lot easier. Um, you you really only have to get your head around one, like I said, one product or service or or one key um, aspect of the business. So 
I think that's um, again that's, that was my second reason. I think it's 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 a valid one because um, you know from an investing point of view, I think um, Andrew Page at Strawman. I've heard him say this a few times that that you know you don't get points for complexity. It's it's mm. you know making investing as simple as possible is 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 the best way to do it. So you know and, and smaller mid caps I think usually give you that. Whereas the the further you go up, usually the more complex. Just from size, size yeah. brings complexity for a lot of businesses. I think that's true. When you're learning um, to invest and when you're learning to research businesses, I find small caps so very compelling because you only necessarily have to understand, not always, but sometimes one business model that a company pursues, one strategy, and you also get that kind of, oftentimes there's like one core product or one core service that they deliver to the market. Sometimes, you know, there are some examples in your portfolio where there are businesses that do a few different things in different geographies. But you can kind of evolve as that, with that story as well as it grows. So that's that's really compelling too. So I like that simplicity. Like I, I'll give you a counterpoint, which is a company called EML Payments. It's now come back a bit. So you, it, it's not necessarily like a blue chip company, but that has operations right around the world, does payments technology, services, hundreds of different clients and, and users. And it becomes very overwhelming. So when you're starting investing, even though it might be an interesting company, it could take you a very, very long time and you just throw your hands up in the air and you think this is too complex for me. Um, mm. So yeah, I fully aboard that that second point there. Um, really good points, mate. What's number three? Yeah. Um, so, so number three is, so far, I guess we've spoken about analyzing a business and I think that's really important and, and gets lost on a lot of people. But of course, the price you pay is really important. It's, it's probably the most oh, important thing. Absolutely. So um, developing techniques to value these businesses at different stages of their life cycle and 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 you know um understanding the difference between price and value i suppose so when you think about large caps um generally speaking most valuations because they are profitable generating cash you fall back to, to your traditional valuation metrics of pe's or, or you know discounted cash flows um, and they work quite well and so mm. for most people and because they're usually big steady businesses like you think about a, a Woolworths or Brambles and Amcor those those big defensive businesses you can usually model them out a few years into the future probably get their growth rates to within a percent or two um you know spot on and so the valuation becomes, is this cheap compared to maybe the market or is this cheap compared to its historical ratios? That's generally how you approach valuation. When we come down into smaller mid caps, you really have to evolve that thinking because these are often businesses that may not be profitable, um, may be burning cash, but almost certainly under earning. And so what I mean by that is when they're early in their growth cycle and they're investing um, through their profit and loss statement, um, maybe by building out an employee base before the growth comes in or investing heavily in R&D or, um, you know, trying to move into a different geography or region or whatever it may be. It's muting that that profit line. The business isn't you know profitable to the extent that it could be at a at a, at a steady state. So coming up with a valuation becomes trickier. You know, a traditional PE model won't work because this business may trade on a hundred times earnings of what they reported last year. Mm. But if that business is you know investing very deeply into their R and D, and if that either winds back to a more sustainable level or as what happens in most businesses, that expense base sort of stays flat and the, the operating leverage starts to open up. That earnings base can accelerate so quickly that, that you know, you, you see it all the time, those, those PE multiples drop so rapidly as these businesses really grow, which is always easy to look 
back on when it happens. Um, you know, we can often find examples of a business that traded exceptionally expensive, but then really grew into its um, its valuation. Finding that at the time is often incredibly difficult mm. because you know you're trying to forecast years out, and so. Um, there's different ways, I guess, of, of trying to put pegs in, you know, square pegs in around holes. People have used price to sales as maybe a way around it. I said gross profit being used. Um, I'm not saying any of those are right or wrong. They're just different tools you can use as an investor. And I think small caps gives you the opportunity to test a lot of them um, mm. on different business models to see, um, you know, how it compares to P or how it's compared to itself in the past. Um, for me personally, I, I think I spoke about this when we, we had our first conversation. Um, I like to think about it in the sense of um, a business building up its earnings engine. And so this is a business that at some point in the future, um, what sort of earnings can be you know, spat out of this business as it reaches a bit more of a maturity through its through its life cycle, um, I try to focus on that on that maturity phase being within maybe one or two years, maybe three. Right. If I'm really confident on where mm-hmm. business is going, if we sort of look back at, at you know what's happening in the current market um, with with a lot of high growth tech stocks. Um, if you think back to last year, I think that time that time horizon was very very long, and people were. You know, they were looking at where businesses could be in five, seven, ten years, yeah. and I, I think that gets very, very risky. And, and of course, with all the uncertainty going on, it, it doesn't surprise me that a lot of de-risking has happened in a lot of those sorts of valuations. But um, you know, for for most um, small cap businesses, um, you know, having some sort of view of where those earnings could be in a reasonable time frame, like I said, a couple of years. Uh, that's sort of how I think through valuation where you don't have those traditional metrics to fall back on. And so you're saying like that one, two, three year window, are you using things like comparable companies that might be ahead of the, the curve or, or like a slightly more mature player in that market? Or is it pattern recognition for you over time? Like how do you get that insight? Yeah, it's a, it's a good point. It's probably a little bit of both, to be honest. Um, like you definitely could always point to uh, more mature peers or maybe overseas peers, which is a little bit dangerous because overseas markets can sometimes trade differently to to, to Australia. Um, pattern recognition is, I think, a big one, though. Like you, you definitely get a feel for what sort of businesses, uh, what sort of business it is and, and what level you know, it can trade at at a certain point in the future as it approaches that maturity level. So identifying, okay, it's a it's a more medium quality business, but at a at a mature level, the market has historically paid 12 to 14 times earnings for this. I think it's on about, you know, seven. You can start to make some cases for how you see a share price playing out in, in a reasonable time frame. Um, so that's matching, I guess, those two. Uh, or I guess mm. the three points we've discussed of you're doing your business analysis to make sure that if you're taking that reasonable time frame, say a couple of years, um, the business analysis is is making sure that the business executes to what you want to do. And then the valuation comes in and says, well, what price am I paying today, assuming my business analysis plays out to a, you know, you know, of course, you always have upside downside scenarios, but but to a base case scenario, what am I paying today? And and if you do that right, what, what I love about small caps is um, You'll often find times where even if the business doesn't fully execute to what you think, if you've got a big enough margin of safety when you first bought, you can often do okay, or at least not poorly. The, the problem you have as, as you go further up into, into large caps where you have a much more efficient market and more eyeballs on it, 
is that margin of safety usually disappears as well mm-hmm. because the price is much more yeah. aligned to, to, to the market's expectations. So when you see mid and large cap businesses miss expectations, the share price reactions can be savage because um, you know there wasn't a margin of safety built into to the, to the price to begin with, and so you know when the, when the market panics, um, it, it it overreacts to the downside. So yeah, no, that's that's the third one. It's 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 very important to be honest. It's probably for someone who is either new to investing or, or early in their journey, it is the most difficult part to do. Because I think mm. even the, from a business analysis point of view, most people with, with working businesses where, you know, a lot of consumer businesses, you're familiar with brands and, and all that sort of stuff. Business analysis is is not natural to people, but can be picked up quite quickly. And you can, you can apply your own experiences sometimes even as an employee um, mm. to, to, to the business analysis. But, but, um, valuing the price of the stock you're paying today, I think is it's it's the the, the learning curve most people have to have to find, and I think it, it probably just takes time. And, and and you put it you put it very well before. It's a lot of pattern recognition, I think, as to mm. um, how the market will value these businesses. Because look, at the end of the day, um, from a from a theoretical point of view, we can both sit here and say. What's the value of the stock today? Well, it's the discounted, you know, um, cash flows that will spit out in, in perpetuity. But we know that in this imperfect world of changing expectations and how the businesses change over time, we we can't do that. So we have to develop, I guess, these shorthand metrics for ourselves to to try and value these businesses and find opportunities. Mm. I would say that's probably one of the more difficult things for smaller cap investors, like smaller company investors, because it, it's almost like the tools, you need to understand the tools as well. So you need to identify what the pattern is and then choose the tool for valuation. Whereas say like Woolworths, Coles, Telstra, industrial companies, they have cash flows. So you probably can value them, like you said before, with a discounted cash flow analysis and a PE ratio. It's quite standard because mm-hmm. mm-hmm. they're consistent in their earnings and what have you. How about number four then? So we've moved from like some business analysis and why small caps, uh, we talked about valuation. What's number four? Yeah, just just quickly on that on a, on a point mm-hmm. that you just raised about understanding your tools. Um, like I said before, the last couple of years, I think we saw the rise of price to sales as a yeah. as a, as, a, as a valuation metric, and I think that started with um, you know a very genuine reason because you had these um, software as a service businesses that have some some really unique characteristics where um, exceptionally high incremental gross margins, meaning that you, your single line of code, every new customer you win, it's, it's essentially 100% margin or, or you know close enough to it. Um, and so when you have that sticky revenue coming through at such an incremental high margin, it made a lot of sense for these businesses to spend very heavily and try and acquire customers that would then stay on a sticky platform. And so price to sales, actually, I think was quite a rational metric for, for, mm. for SaaS businesses and, and provided um, a lot of value. It got a little bit bastardized though, and was starting to be applied to any loss-making business. And, and I think it's, it goes back to your point of understand your tools and where they're best used. And, and so I think, there's been a market reckoning reckoning over the last couple of months for a lot of those styles of businesses, and I think a big reason good for that point. is is people were misusing that 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 tool. So, um, very good point. Understand your tools um, and, and understand where they can best be used for different businesses. Um, number number four, I think, so we've probably touched on this a few times, but but it's quite a simple one. You just have a bigger variance in in outcomes, and so mm. that that provides you opportunity, but also um, I guess 
interest as an investor. Like, like I said, there's certain investors who um, big defensive blue chip businesses, I get why you want to own them. It may be a time in your life where you're in capital preservation. Um, but, but to be honest, um, I think for most people, it's just a lot more interesting researching a business where the variance of, of outcomes is quite wide. If a, if a business can really execute and, and you know, a management team can, can um, drive penetration to a large global addressable market, not only do you get the validation of usually a very strong stock price with that, but you get to see this thesis play out where the business executes either to your expectations or better. And so it's, it's you know, a really good positive feedback loop to have as an investor. Um, whereas compared to, as we we're talking about before, take a, a Woolworths or a Coles, um, we can pretty much sit here t- today and tomorrow and say in a year from now, their revenue will probably be up between three to five percent. And, and you know, that, that variation, that variance mm. in the outcomes is quite small, which means as, as an analyst, you probably don't add a great deal of analytical value to, to the work you're doing. Um, whereas in small caps, that, that variance is quite large. And so then again, it's sort of all into place together. So Understanding that variance, you may have this wide range of outcomes, but but uh, you know you have your, your classic bell curve, um, and it's it's where do we where do we sort of sit in that bell curve? So we have this this fat tail at either ends, um, but where's my most likely outcome? Is it more towards you know this business really executing or doing well, or are we in an environment or a business where that's actually more likely that some of those negative outcomes, you know, it's more likely weighted to be a negative outcome than, than, than positive compared to, I guess, maybe where the market's thinking. Um, and then, of course, overlay valuation onto that becomes another mm. um, a, another key aspect. You, you may have um, a business where, you know, even from a base case, it's it's factoring in some, some, some negative outcomes. But if the market's pricing even worse than that, then you can still do okay. Um, but I think it, it's 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 really interesting, and it's it's you know often at the time you know we had these small cap businesses and, and um, they may be growing strongly or, or doing quite well, but it's usually only after a few years. And, and, and a point you made before, I think, is a very valid one. Even as analysts, you often grow with these businesses and 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 develop new understandings of them and new perspectives on them. And it's always interesting sometimes to look back and see, you know, where has the business come from from where I first expected it to be. Um, and hopefully, if if you've done you know good work or, or or the businesses have executed, it may be you know just as good or better than what you've hoped. Um, but if, even if you haven't, or even if it hasn't, maybe that valuation is is sort of providing a bit of a um, you know, softer landing for you anyway. But I think just the interest that I get from this wide variance of outcomes in small caps, it's, it's you know, why I naturally lean towards them. Mm. I find that, I find those two points, uh, three and four, to be really succinct in that, you know, we know that the the formula for expected returns is basically the probability of an event multiplied by the like the the price at that time or the valuation at that time. So for example, if you have your, you know, your bull base and bear case, What's the probability of those, you know, the variance mm. in small caps, they're further apart, right? Yes. But that, you know, the valuation you can work out if you have those scenarios. And so that's where it gets really interesting is like, you might have a probability of this, like you said, on the bell curve, I might have it at this rate. And then all of a sudden, that's what creates those opinions in forms of valuations. And that's where it gets really interesting because you might discover something because no other analyst has covered it. I haven't covered it. Someone else hasn't covered it. And that gives you a like more conviction in your probability, which I think makes it really exciting too. Yeah, yeah, and and I think it's it's really interesting as well because 
you need to have that. Like we're talking about um, under-research, under-followed and often illiquid markets. And if you're able to build your conviction and grow your conviction, um, that's so important because that will often come in the face of, um, you know, sometimes a negative share price. If, if the market's not seeing what you're seeing, um, mm. you know, the share price may be performing poorly, particularly in a market like this where, you know, overall there's some negative sentiment around. Um, so it's important that you're not being blinded by the signals being given off by the market or, or even in the stock price itself, that you're focused on where is your conviction coming from and is that conviction still there? Now, of course, I guess it leads us to a part of the conversation of what happens if your conviction is wrong and how do you know your conviction mm. is wrong? It's, it's often so difficult to do. It, it, it's probably under-discussed by a lot of people. Um, you know, how to identify when you've made a mistake. I think everyone accepts sort of, you know, the, the, the correct course of action or philosophy is when you identify a mistake, you, you exit and, and move out. Um, but, but identifying when you've made one is often so difficult because um, you, like I said, you, you were just saying you build up your conviction and often your conviction can grow based on the factors you're looking at. But if you're not seeing the forest through the trees, there can be problems there. So, you know, for me personally, um, that's where I'm always looking to, bounce ideas off people and why I've I've never been afraid of, of putting ideas out into the public domain just so I can always have that sort of critiquing. Um, you, you don't want to be stuck in an echo chamber where, um, you know, you have really deep conviction in something, but it's it's, it's not right. And, and of course, you're, you're stuck there mm. while, um, you know, there's plenty of valid reasons that maybe you're not seeing or a different perspective of how other people may look at it, whatever, whatever it may be. Um, you need to be open to that and, and willing to hear those those other opinions. Mm. Yeah, and for people that don't follow you, um, Luke's uh, was one of the. I feel like you're like a charter user, charter kind of power user of straw man, and um, like prolific on Twitter too. So it's worth a follow, and uh, I'm sure you get a chance to share your opinion with Luke if he tweets. Um, mate, how about the fifth and final one for like five reasons why small cap investing? is like a great place to, to develop your investing skills. Yeah, well, we'll, we'll use this one to then, um, I guess, move into the second part of the conversation. But um, I think there's just easier access to management in small caps. Mm, so, definitely. you know, if, you, if you're looking at a large cap company, I think best case scenario, you may be, may be able to get a phone call with the IAR department, um, investor relations department. Um, most small cap CEOs that I've come across, obviously now with Meriwether Capital being a fund, um, that, that access is a little bit easier. But even in my time as a private investor, um, I could probably count on one hand the amount of times where I wasn't able to get a phone call with a with a management team. Um, by far, most of them are really happy to talk about their business. Um, most of them are usually founders, and and you know they they don't have people knocking down their door every day to talk about the business or or mm. the share price, and so. You know, if you're the if you're the person that sends them an email out of the blue and says, "I've stumbled across your stock," however you may have done it, um, would be interested in a chat. Most of them are really happy to do it and, and, and happy to tell the happy to tell their story and provide more more context to the business. Um, and I think you get a, you get a much deeper understanding than you know talking to an investor relations manager who has their you know a four page of dot points that they're able to talk about and then a long list of stuff they're unable to talk about because of you know restrictions or whatever it may be so 
um, I, I think it's, yeah, w- we might take the conversation into talking about yeah, it. I think yeah. it's so important. And I think small caps give you a much better access to that, even as a private investor. And yeah, as we segue into this, um, I often find that if you think about it, it's like a smaller team so and a smaller overall business. So oftentimes management teams can have a bigger influence on everyone or everything that a business does. So I've also asked you to bring like to the table, some questions that you could ask basically any management team. Um, last time you had some a, a great one, which I'm going to, I don't know your question, so I'm, I'm going to see if you bring it up. If you don't, then I'll remind you of it. But um, yeah, let's dive straight into that. So company management, so important to investing as part of the qualitative side of research. Um, how do you go about it? And what questions do you ask? Yeah, well, um, you, you're right in that introduction. So for a small cap company, um, you know, you think about a, a large business, like think about something like a, a Telstra, um, you know, had a, had a revolving door of CEOs and not much really changes in that business because it's so bureaucratic and, and, you know, it's just systems and processes that have been in place for, for decades. Small businesses are the complete opposite. It's 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 dynamic. It's always shifting. Um, your, you know, your employees are always the... At the, at the front of the business. And so maintaining a good culture and um, maintaining a good workforce, it's so, it's so important, um, let alone all the decisions they have to make around strategy and capital allocation and, and, and all sorts of stuff. So um, I do always try to, to, to speak to the management teams. Um, like I said, most are usually happy to do it. I've come across a couple who sort of take the view of we run the business and if you want to own it, you can. Um, mm. But nonetheless, most are happy, happy to chat. Um, so one of the one of the questions I usually always ask is something along the lines of who are your competitors and why would customers use them instead of you? And I think this gives you a couple of a couple of um, things to take away. The first is you get the list of competitors, which is sometimes obvious if you're talking about you know retail brands or you know consumer facing businesses. You often know who their competitors are. It's not a big deal, but for a lot of industrial businesses or you know. Um, enterprise businesses, uh, you know, their competitors can be businesses you've never heard of or, or based overseas or whatever it may be. So just, just getting that list of, okay, um, here's your list of competitors. What can I do with this? And, and one of the most obvious ones is if they're listed, you know, go and go and look at their at their filings, um, whether on the ASX or maybe overseas and how are they performing, what's their commentary like, how do they see the industry, do they call out the, the business you're looking at as a competitor? Um, you know, a lot, of, a lot of things can be done there. The second part of the question I think is also important about how the management team are approaching the strategy, which is why would a customer choose your competitors over you? And a lot of the times the answer may be something like price or um, like it has, the competitor may have um, features that they have or whatever it may be, whatever that answer is, it gives you an insight as how as to how the CEO or that management team view their competitive structure and what they're trying to achieve within that. So take price as an example. It's always an interesting one. A lot of businesses take the view of we try to be a premium product in a market or maybe the other side, we're a discount product in the market. Um, so we know where we sit that's what we try to capture. We don't come down into the discount or we don't move up into the premium. Um, and that's often a very valid answer and it gives you some perspective over, you know, what they're trying to do and, and, and how they're going about it. Um, but where, where you get some real values in stuff like, um, 
you know, where they feel their product may be um, behind competitors. And, and so, you know, you, you'll often get insight as to where investment might have to be made to bring a product or a service up to scratch yeah. or where can they improve themselves or um, if you have a services business that maybe doesn't have a footprint across all of Australia. So, you know, maybe some people choose our competitors because we don't have a footprint in WA. There's a lot, lots of different examples, um, but it gives you a great perspective as to how they are thinking about where they are in their in their industry and against their competitors. You can even go a bit further into it as to you know how aggressive are their competitors. Are you in a are you in a structure where you know it, it may be a cozy oligopoly and everyone sits there content with what they've got? Are you in a are you in an industry where there's a price war going on and, and you know you're you're competing heavily against your competitors for market share to either retain or, or win that? Um, and, you know, that, that may be a business you're looking to avoid um, at, at a certain point in time. It can be very difficult when, when businesses engage in, in, in price wars um, to, to try and capture or retain market share. So, um, yeah, that's always a question I ask, and it gives, I think, some really good perspective on, on an industry and, and where they sit within it. Um, when you said that, it actually reminded me of uh, a conversation I had with a CEO and CFO last week where... I identify one of their competitors in something that they've done historically, but this company that I was researching has just come out with this new software and this new, basically like this platform that wraps around the hardware. And they, I said, oh, you know, your competitor's not at this level yet. And they said, well, actually, uh, and then they said, you might not know this, but our competitor who does the hardware is actually owned by another company, which does software. And so they're bridging that divide already. So I didn't get that insight until I asked that question, like, who is the competitor that you're most concerned about? And um, they volunteered that information, which was really interesting because now I know who I need to watch, basically, like who's who's snapping at their tail. So um, that's a really good question. I, I like that. And sometimes I think it's worth mentioning that some CEOs and some management teams won't be super candid. Sometimes they will say, yeah, I've heard, the amount of times I've heard we don't have competitors. Um, yeah. That's that, that's a good one um, because you know that they do. Every business does. But um, yeah, great first question. What about yeah. number two? Um, so number two probably goes into something you just said about sometimes difficult to get a candid answer out of them, which is just what are the biggest challenges facing the business? Let's say next twelve months. Pick a pick a reasonable time frame, and I think. Naturally, when you speak to these management teams, um, they will they will paint a positive picture for you. And oftentimes, that's not malicious at all. Like like I said, a lot of times, these small businesses, it's often the founder still running it. It's mm. their you know it's their baby. It's their business. They want it to do well, and it has done in the past. So you know you have to bring the the perspective to the conversation. And so for me, what that means beforehand is is researching the company before I have a conversation with management um, for the simple reason of if I have a blind conversation with management without having any sort of perspective going in, I'm a blank slate for you know the, the positive um, yeah. story that will be put in front of me. If I do the work beforehand and I have you know my list of questions and I have you know potential, issues, challenges, whatever it may be, um, then I can be, you know, the foil to that positive story and, and, and you know, be able to not, not necessarily pick it apart, but, but you know, know when and where to, to, to provide some, some context to it. Um, but a question like that, I think, cuts through that positivity and says, okay, you know, 
what are you worried about over the next 12 years? Where, where, can this, where can this business trip up? And to your point before about someone who says there's no competitors, like if you get an answer from someone along the lines of oh, we have no, you know, we're, there's no issues, everything's absolutely flying, mm-hmm. it's probably more of a red flag than someone who is brutally honest and says, you know, we have half a dozen issues that keep me up every night sort of thing. So I, I think... It, it gives you then a good perspective to go away because um, that's what you're really trying to do when you, when you talk to management teams. You're looking to, like, no management team ever just says, you know, here's what my business is going to do next year, X, Y, Z, mm. you should buy my stock and, and, and whatever. It's just providing little pockets of information and context to, to, to the research you've already done. And so if you're able to better understand the challenges that management see, you may be able to try and track them in the background. So, you know, let's take retailers as an an example. Right now, every retailer is saying supply chain issues, wage cost inflation, some of the problems they're facing. Um, You know, as an investor, you you now know these are the things I need to be keeping an eye on. And are these things getting worse or are they starting to abate? If they're getting worse, then, you know, do I need to revisit my investment thesis or or revisit my valuation if I think they're getting worse while the share price may have held up okay, you know, maybe overvalued compared to to what's really happening behind the scenes. Um, But it also gives you some perspective as to where is management focused? Um, You know, a lot of times... Mm. I'll come into a conversation with what I perceive to be the biggest challenge facing them. That may be, a, you know, they're a small business to a large competitor or, um, you know, it may be new technologies um, coming in and encroaching on what they do. And then when you speak to the management team, you know, not to say that oftentimes it's dismissed, but for them, they may not have as much weight behind those issues. There's other things they're focused on and, and you know, they may think that the issues that you thought may be problems either aren't as big or, or, you know, potentially maybe outside of their control. And so, you know, let's focus on what we can control. So I think you get a good perspective on, like I said, cutting through that, that positivity. Let's get to, okay, what, what does keep you up at night? What are the issues? How can you address them? You know, it sort of ties into that conversation as well. Um, because I think what, what gets a bit scary um, is when you see businesses that have issues that they can't control. That becomes that becomes a problem. Like if if you are dealing with supply chain issues or input price problems, um, but you're a fixed price contractor, that's a problem. If yeah. you're someone who can, you know, take those um, those input cost pressures but pass on a price increase to your customers, okay, you know, you've got issues, but you've got actions to try and mitigate them. So that's you know that's what we're really trying to get to as investors um, to try and understand like. Um, you know, how these management teams are seeing their business, seeing their industry and and, and, and reacting to it. Mm. Yeah, I find that's that's fantastic. Um, and every business should have risks, right? Like every business should have something. So it's a, it's a great way to identify, to weed out certain answers and to yeah. identify, understand who you're talking to as well. I feel like that's, that's, that's a valid way to do it. Um, okay, so I'm, I'm secretly hoping that you're going to say, you're going to, bring us the question that I think you're going to say, but if you're not, then that gives us a fourth. So what's your, what's your third question that you almost always can ask a management team? Um, so the fourth one is um, what are the metrics that you use to, to judge yourself? That's and the one. What, what can I do to, to sort of track that? So um, it's, it's, I think it's such a good question because like I said, if we think about large caps, 
usually the main metric that um, you know is, is is driving these businesses and, and driving the incentives of these management teams is is profits and earnings at EPS, um, mm. which makes sense. They're usually mature businesses, and, and that's the life cycle they're at. Uh, you come back to small caps. Um, usually, you know, obviously they're businesses that want to get to profitability and, and get there at some point. But when you're talking to them earlier on in their life cycle, there may be other things that they're focused on ahead of that. And so trying to identify, you know, we just had this conversation about trying to identify the issues that management sees. Well, let's let's sort of flip that question on its head. Like, let's let's talk about what are your opportunities? What are you focused on? What are you excited about? Um, you know, and, and where I think I get a lot of value out of a question like this is, you have businesses where you may have a core business and maybe a new product they're developing R&D and you have a conversation with the CEO and you quickly realise, you know, he's really excited about this new product. And right now it's not in the numbers. It's not, you know, it's not contributing meaningful revenue or profits, but that's the, that's the focus. And it may be the future of the business if, if they're able to execute and grow. And so it's an insight that you may not have gotten just by looking at, at you know, raw numbers or, or sometimes, you know, for, for some management teams who are quite conservative um, or they're a little, bit, um, um, a little bit cautious about, you know, putting uh, certain things in, in public market filings if they are doing some R&D or, or developing new products, um, you know, you get some perspective you just otherwise wouldn't have got. So then similar to talking about the issues and the challenges, the next flow on to that is, um, okay, so this is what you're excited about and this is what you're benchmarking yourself to. Um, and and it could be it could be something like a new geography, you know, where we've got a very strong presence in New South Wales or Australia. We're looking to move to the UK or New Zealand. So, um, you know, in the in the short term, that's where, my, a large part of my focus is, is is we want to grow there. So okay, next time you report, well, what's what's UK what's UK growth done? Is 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 that executing mm. well, or are there challenges? So it just it gives you as an investor, it, it lets you know where to look um, based on where management's really trying to grow value, focus their efforts and and and, and um, attention, um, and then also. I think just gives you that opportunity, like I said, because the market's usually so focused on the here and now is that if you can sort of take that that little bit of a longer time view and and sort of um, share their, again, you don't want to be sucked into drinking the Kool-Aid or share the excitement, but if you can sort of say, okay, well, if they're able to execute on a geographical expansion or if they're able to monetize a new product or service or if they're able to pivot their product to a new vertical you know, what does that mean and, and, and what the numbers be in a couple of years? That's where I think you can – it goes back to our conversation about a wide range of outcomes and variances, um, but that's where it gets really exciting for small-cap investors. Um, if the market's not pricing in that upside, that's where I usually get quite excited. Yeah, I, and again, I'm remembering back to the, this conversation last week because a lot of this rings true to that. Um, in that conversation, they say, like, we've got this hardware unit and where there's a software component that comes with that and they've launched this software component and the way they're measuring that, which I hadn't heard them talk about before, is basically if we get X number of hardware units or installed devices into the market, then we convert to the software subscription, what's the percentage that we convert? So there's a few variables there that they're tracking. How do we get the number of installed devices into the market and what's the conversion rate basically? Um, and so from that as an investor, then I can follow up you know, in six months and say, well, how many 
install devices out there? How many devices did you get into the market? Yep. And that's a f- fantastic way. Like I wouldn't have thought to have asked that specific question, but that was the number one thing that was on the CFO's mind. And yep. so that was part of their strategy to lower prices, to get more of these devices out there now to then inst- to switch them over to software in time. So I think that's a, that's a fantastic question. And that's the one that I, I knew. Um, well, I, I didn't know, but I, I figured it might be in your top three because a lot of people have taken that. I know in, on Twitter in particular, have taken that question. Now they apply it to their companies as well. So mm. um, you're a bit of a thought leader there, mate. I like it. And, and to go back to your example, without even knowing the business, I'm going to make an assumption that um, the, the numbers they're reporting today are probably very hardware driven. Yeah. And so what that means is that um, there's a bit of an edge there because if the market's focused on the here and now and the numbers that are coming out of the hardware division, you know that management have a strategy to maybe loss lead that or, or you know, whatever the strategy might be to grow the conversion of the software. Um, then you know the next report it may be a disappointment to yep. to the market that's focused on you know short term numbers on a on a on a hardware division, um, but if that conversion is is high and that software is growing, then as an investor you know your thesis could still be playing out quite strongly. And it goes back to again a point we made before about your conviction in a stock can often increase in the face of what may seem to be a weaker market. Um, as long as you're focused on the right things, then then you'll do you'll do fine in the in the longer term for sure. Yeah, that's the way I interpret it as well. So the shares are down. So um, yeah. that's, a good one. that's a good one. Maybe we can have a chat off air. But mate, um, you've brought like five great reasons why investors should, should think about you know developing their skills as, as small cap investors and analysts, and also then brought three questions that I think are fantastic to ask to any management team if you get if you get the opportunity. So I'll put all those in the show notes. And um, if people want to reach out to you, they want to find out more about you, read your your letters from the fund. Where can they go to do that? Yeah, merryweathercapital.com.au. Um, got the the fun letters on there. Um, I've got a blog that I, I, I'm trying to keep more up to date. I, I wish I did more on it. It's more about finding time um, where I, I post some sort of deep dives into a couple of stocks in the portfolio. Um, follow me on Twitter at Luke Winchester9. Um, mm-hmm. And yeah, you know, if anyone ever wants to you know, have a conversation either about investing or about Merryweather Capital, um, Luke at merryweathercapital.com.au. Shoot me an email. I'm always more than happy to, you know, chat to mm. people. And, and in particular, like, I think if people go back to the first conversation we had, um, you know, my, my entry into the industry was effectively yep. from the outside coming in quite unorthodox. So, you know, I, I'm, I'm usually very open to, to anybody starting off in investing and just wanting to ask, you know, I've been there. You sometimes don't want to ask a dumb question. But if you ever want to ask me a dumb question, shoot me an email. I'll, um, you know, I've I've probably asked it before myself. <laughs> yeah, likewise, likewise, mate. That's great. So Luke's a fantastic resource um, online. So I'll put all the links in the show notes, mate. It's always a pleasure. So thanks for joining me. Awesome. Thanks, mate. For more than a decade, I've been hunting for the best investors and their methods, strategies, and tools for investing. After years in the industry, countless books, a few degrees, and 1,000 podcasts and live shows, I've rolled this accumulated knowledge into something called Rask Invest. If you've ever heard me talk about a core in a satellite, 
active and passive, true long-term compounding, or you simply want to know exactly how I would invest, now is your chance. Rask Invest is our new investment service, designed for all types of investors who want professional management of their core portfolio at a low cost from a team they trust. Rask Invest helps you automate your wealth creation and passive income. Simply click the link that says Invest with Owen in your podcast player to join one of our live platform walkthroughs or book a call with us. You can also view the Rask Invest PDS and TMD and get invested with me.